0: What's going on everybody and welcome to episode 22 of the Did You Hear podcast, part of the Blue Wire Hustle podcast network. I'm Emma Houghton, he's Pat Zhang, and Pat, we have another phenomenal interview today.
1: Yeah, it's crazy that we are on episode 22 at this point, but could not be more excited to bring this interview. It is the perfect guest for us to have for our type of show for this time of year with opening day. Mm. Coming up on Thursday. Uh, super, super pumped to uh, to be able to bring this to you guys.
0: Yeah, so Pat and I talked about it a bit during the interview, but just to preface it a little bit, we brought on Paul Hembakitas, best known as Hembo from ESPN. He works on Get Up, he works on hashtag Greenie, which is on ESPN radio. He was also a backbone of Mike and Mike when that show was still going on. And If you listen to our show, if you like our show, that's because you also like stats and numbers and the storylines that you aren't hearing on the mainstream news channels or sports channels. So Paul was the perfect guest for us to have on because he gave such insane numbers and stats and insight into what his everyday is at ESPN and then so much stuff that made us so much smarter talking about baseball. It was crazy and it's perfect timing the week of opening day.
1: For sure, his his answers were great. You know, he expanded on everything. He brought stuff to back all of his answers up. I I, I thought it was a really fun interview. So um, yeah,
0: yeah. All right. So make sure to listen. You'll hear, I mean, everything from what's the best stat to use, what stat he thinks is devalued, to some general season previewy questions about opening day. So sit back, relax, and we will be back after this interview with Paul Hembachidis with our craziest numbers of the week and our best of segment. All right, so we are joined by Paul Hemba otherwise known as Hembo. He began his career at ESPN as a researcher for the stats and information department. He worked on the Mike and Mike show, and he's now a content producer and researcher for Get Up and Greeny on ESPN Radio. He also contributes to Buster Only's Baseball Tonight podcast. Buster likes to say he is the backbone of Get Up. So, Paul, thank you so much for being here. How you doing? Well, thank you.
2: Good, thanks. Thank you so much for pronouncing my last name correctly. That's a first.
0: Hey, Houghton, I get my fair share of, of mispronunciations too. So I, I feel you there.
2: Okay, I think I have it worse, but fair enough. Yeah, you definitely <laughs> that's, that's fair point.
0: <laughs> so Paul, to get right into it, you've said on a podcast before that you found your lane in sports through statistics and you want to give statistics that leave people feeling smarter. You want to make them sing. So can you talk a little bit about how, where that desire came from and how you're able to manifest that in your day-to-day responsibilities at ESPN?
2: Yeah. So when you, when you first start out at ESPN, at least like you mentioned, uh, as a researcher in stats and information, like the the first thing you got to do is just learn how to use all the tools, right? You have to learn how to use the, you know, the sports reference play indices. You have to learn how to use pivot tables and accept, like all this stuff that, you know, you know even the layperson knows how to do in order to, to run a stat query. And, and that's the most important thing, because if you can't get there, then telling stories um, becomes a lot more, more difficult. Like You need that foundation. But once you have that set, what I, um, what I really enjoy and what I you know, always strive to do is uh, um, enable those numbers to make people smarter in ways that they can understand. It's very easy, um, given the amount of, of data that, that you know, crosses our timelines now, to sort of get muddled in the, the uh, I guess, more ass of of all of the of all of the minutia, right? So what I like to do is keep it as simple as possible. So if you're an average sports fan watching a show or listening to a podcast, how can I enlighten you in a way that you will understand, uh, understand all the way while also using some metrics or statistics or you know whatever whatever you know the data point is that might be something that uh, I might not even have I've understood ten years ago myself, right? So if if I am going to try and describe how good a hitter Mike Trout was last year. A really easy way to do it would be to say he was about his batting line was about 70% better than the league average. That's a lot better of a way to say it to the average fan than his OPS plus was 170. It's a much more complicated thing, right? So over the course of time, I've just gotten myself to a point where I like to think that I'm talking about uh, sports conversationally in a sense and injecting statistics where they belong, not using statistics sort of overwhelmingly, which is sort of how I begun in this business because that's my language. But that's not everybody's language, as you guys, I'm sure, know too. Totally. Yeah,
1: for sure. And I had to. I couldn't help but smile when you said OPS plus, because as Emma knows, that is my favorite stat to tell people basically how hitters are to league average. Like you said, I think that percentage just really simplifies it for people. Um, before we get into some baseball stuff, I also have a question that kind of centers around your job a lot. Um, your trivia questions are a lot of fun, <laughs> and they can be very challenging. What do you look for? In your in your trivia questions, is it relevance? Is it that you want to stump the person that you're asking it to? What what do you think kind of permutates a perfect trivia question?
2: Yeah, I mean, that has been that has been refined over the years. I'm I'm better at it now than I once was. Um, I would say that on on an on an average day, I want to conceive a trivia question that is that sounds as easy as possible, that most people don't get right, but not all people will get wrong. Like I want you to have a chance. I don't want the I don't want the answer to be something obscure or a player that most people haven't heard of. I want the answer to be something that you could guess. Like I don't I don't even like trivia questions for which like you have to remember the answer. I like to be able to mm-hmm. conceive trivia questions for which like you can narrow it down in your mind to say three quarterbacks and take a stab at it from there. When I when I duel with Dan Graziano, I like to make them a little bit more challenging because we're keeping score this year. And right now he's he's up seventeen to twelve, which is a which is a oh, big man. problem for me at the, at the moment, yeah. but that's something that we can remedy over the next eight months. So <laughs> that, that, I guess that's how I would best describe it. The I honestly like a perfect example of this is a trivia question I used on last Friday on the podcast, on the, on the, on the show. Um, Zach Lowe was on. I love Zach. I love his podcast and I, I very great. much respect his basketball intellect. So I conceived what I thought was a, a trivia question that he would think is extremely easy that he would get wrong. And he did. The question was who is the only player in the history of the NBA to win an MVP award in both, conferences he like most people who guessed thought it was kareem abdul jabbar but mm-hmm. the next layer was and looking back at how they aligned teams back then the bucks were in the west at that time mm-hmm. moses malone played for the rockets at a time they were in the west and then he also won one with the 76ers so when he guessed that wrong on the air it was a triumphant moment in the fist pumping exhibition for me which i very richly deserved at that point
0: point. and you've gotten <laughs> good at lately yeah, You're fortunate <laughs> enough, too, to be asking trivia questions to some of the most knowledgeable sports people in the universe, too, which has got to be pretty,
2: pretty <laughs> nice. Well, that's fair, because I, I always have to remember, like, if, if in a given week I ask five questions, if three or four of them are answered correctly on the air, that's okay. Because in theory, like, a, a professional NFL analyst should have a better shot of it than uh, our average viewer, right? So I want to make it so that the average viewer has a legitimate chance. And if the person on the air happens to get it wrong, that's sort of icing on the cake.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And so our podcast is called Did You Hear? Pat and I truly did sit down. We started back in November. And we thought about what our niche would be, what our avatar would look like. And we're both very stat-centric. We think that numbers make the stories pop off the page. So like I said, when I, I reached out to you, I really admire your work and how you make the stuff that maybe people don't care about really come to life. So so with that being said, let's get into baseball now, which I know is your favorite too. Indeed. If you were were to name the best baseball player in history, what stats or numbers would you use to make that claim? So even to put it it simply, what do you think is the most important stat in determining a person's greatness? And if you could do a hitter and a pitcher,
2: that would be really cool. Starting you with the heavy stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no kidding. You got, one of you will talk again in five minutes. So here, here's, here, here's what I would say. Something like eight or 10 years ago, if you had asked me that question, I would have said the answer is clearly war. And mm-hmm. that's, that, that can't be disputed because it is a single best way to uh, reduce a player's value to a single number, which is super valuable. It's also calculated different ways, uh, ways that are, being, uh, if, uh, that are evolving over time based upon new information that we get. And the more I work in this industry, the more I've learned that you're oversimplifying things. If you think a player can be just a number, that's, that's sort of what I've, that's sort of the conclusion that I've come to. So to answer your question in sort of a roundabout way, every year I help Bob Buster only out with his top tens. He ranks every position by, uh, in, in the off season, you know, the top 10 players. And in doing so, I usually have like eight or ten tabs open on my on my computer. One of them is WAR. I use WAR from both Baseball Reference and from Fangraphs. That was going to be
1: my question. Mm-hmm. Yep. And
2: WAR from Baseball perspectives because I'm comfortable with how they're all calculated, but I'm I don't I'm not willing to use one of them as it's the as it's the Bible. I also like using a variety of defensive metrics, um, not just one. Like defensive run saved is great, but we also have new statcast metrics that I like. Fangraphs and Baseball Perspective have other ways to measure value. There's 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 new smart ways to do base running. There's obviously really effective ways to adjust for quality of opponent. So all that stuff has has made you know the answer to your question much more complicated over the course of time. So but also easier if you're able to sift through the information properly. So if you were to ask me the question who is the greatest baseball player of all time, the answer is Babe Ruth, because Babe Ruth would be considered the greatest player of all time had he never pitched a single game in his career. Yeah. And he has thrown more innings in his he threw more innings in his career than Jacob deGrom has. So, this is a, like he has produced an extraordinary value as a pitcher as well. It's not close. And his war total and his league adjusted uh, slash line and his league adjusted uh, pitching line is evidence of that. The best pitcher of all time is Walter Johnson. Now, those are both obviously ancient players who, by today's standards, are very you know, difficult to, to measure. But Walter Johnson blows almost every pitcher out of the water using those same measures. If you look at players post integration, I think the, the, the position player with the best case is pretty clearly Willie Mays. And if you're looking at pitchers post-integration, it's a little bit more challenging. The answer is probably Roger Clemens, if you're willing to exclude the, the, the performance-enhancing drugs piece of it. If you're not, it's probably Tom Seaver or Randy Johnson for my money. Lefty Grove is also someone whom I believe is way underrated historically. But again, he was he was like in the 30s mostly, 20s and 30s. So he, like, a little bit after Walter Johnson. So that's a, that's a really complicated answer to your question. But I think blending all that stuff together, I guess the one other thing I would say, now that I'm just sort of r- rambling here, I like using win probability added a good bit more than most people. Uh, it's hard to get on broadcasts and on, on you know shows because it's not the easiest thing to interpret, and it's very difficult to know what a good baseline is of it. But in determining a hitter's value, using WPA I think is as valuable as using his offensive war, for example, or his league-adjusted batting line because it tells you how good he was when it mattered, right? It, it, it adjusts for how he performed in high leverage circumstances or in low leverage circumstances so for example like if you look at Bryce Harper's splits over the last couple of years like his performance in high leverage is off the charts but for some reason he just can't seem to focus when no one's on base right so that's a thing that matters to me also I even though uh, WP obviously doesn't account for a player's defense to me like after his uh, players war it's one of the first things that I check because if there's any sort of correlation year to year in terms of how a hitter performs in high leverage that's major sort of brownie points uh, on his ledger
0: interesting yeah, oh, it's so it's interesting. funny because i feel like in, even in the past decade things like batting average and flat era have become obsolete and who knows when war is become, going to become the same.
2: <laughs> so yeah. yeah i mean batting average that's that's like i totally agree with you there and like we've gotten so smart that batting average and and rbi are are just are just additional data points i don't yeah. penalize players for having high ones like that's obviously silly but do I consider the person with the highest batting average the batting champ no maybe only historically um or, or if it tells a story so for example when D.J. LeMahieu you know wanting batting title in both leagues like that's a cool note is yeah. it meaningful not really but I think one thing that's also worth considering as it relates to the batting average is players historically were evaluated with, with different measures than they are now so for example like Tony Gwynn probably wasn't as great a player as we thought he was at the time because he didn't hit for a lot of power right But at the time, being the batting champion was something that mattered a lot. So it's not fair to penalize Tony Grin historically for hitting that way because he was a good enough hitter that if he knew that adding 40 points of slugging and 20 points of on base was worth losing 20 points of batting average, he would have just done that, right? Mm -hmm. And that goes for the first 100 years of baseball history. So I don't like when when we retroactively penalize players for, for playing a certain way when they didn't know any better. I do think it's fair to reward players historically that played the way we now know is the best way to do so. It's like uh, who's a good underrated player? Like Johnny Mize, for example, is like a top 50 hitter of all time. We just didn't know that at the time, right? So that's sort of how I view that statistic historically. As far as ERA goes, that's like that's still a a measure that I do think matters because ultimately, like if you ask me like the simple question, what is the pitcher's most important job? It's preventing runs, and that's one way to measure it. Now I don't use ERA in a vacuum, but I, I think ERA is a more valuable statistic than batting averages.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And just as everything gets more and more advanced as we can go on too. Yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, oh yeah. That, that's so cool. So it kind of, kind of took away the question I was going to ask you about what's that do you think is overvalued nowadays? So I'll, or do you want to take that? I, yeah, I go got, for it. Yeah. I
2: got another one. OPS. OPS, yes. stinks. OPS yep. is a bad stat because you're adding two rates that are, they don't have equal. Don't have value, anything. Right? Right? No. Yeah. So like it's not, it's better than batting average but it like the the notion that ops is this like modern statistical marvel is silly like you you don't add you don't add two unequal things and get and conclude something in any other way right so like it would be like if you if you view two pointers and three pointers in the nba the same way like you would obviously use effective field goal percentage or true shooting percentage mm-hmm. over field goal percentage because we know that matters way more so using ops Rather than like, rather than um, you know weighted runs created plus or OPS plus or deserved runs created plus or something that adjusts for that, to me just seems silly because we know that the average on base percentage is like 330 or 340. We know the average slugging is over 400. The only way that you can stack two statistics on top of each other and view it as a as a credible one is if the averages are somewhat close to the same. Okay. So I I, I I like if you see OPS on broadcasting, like I'm cool with it. Mm-hmm. But like when I'm watching it, I know like. That's only so useful. Like, we have we have better ways to tell that hitter story. Like, it's a better way than just to say batting average, but it's not as good a way as five other things.
0: Yeah, no, I'm with you on that one. Interesting. Okay, so, Paul, I know that you're a huge fan of Moneyball, and we've been talking about stats this whole time, obviously. We're a bit far removed now, but I want to go back to Game 6 of the World Series and hear your thoughts on Snell being pulled. And then as a follow-up to that, do you think – right now in this current era of baseball are analytics going overboard
2: um <laughs> so i'm the only person that thinks that kevin cash did the right thing and i still do okay. so so like i i did podcasts and radio hits the week afterwards and was yelled at by every person who um like he, look. and it's fair to at the time like have, having watched that say like obviously he's shoving right now we should leave him in the game like that's not to say that all those people were wrong but it is to say that the Rays got to that point, game six of the World Series, by going by the book, right? Mm-hmm. The Rays got to that point of the World Series by pulling their starter before he starts a third time through the order because in the, in the very last the very last time Blake Snell pitched, once he reached a third time through the order, he started struggling too. Like we had the, the road map was following itself and his, his velocity was declining some and the shape of his breaking ball was too. So it's really easy uh, in hindsight to look at that as being like analytics going too far. And I think the industry might actually use it as I guess something of a microcosm to change in the future. I think when, for example, uh, Theo Epstein joined the joined Major League Baseball to to work on the you know baseball's future initiative. Like I wouldn't be at all surprised if Rob Manford gave him that call in that position in part because he was so fed up with all this stuff. But the bottom line is, if it's allowed by the rules, teams are going to maximize you know what 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 they're able to do and what the math says. And the Rays are not a team that I mean you don't you don't get to Game Six of the World Series with a – minuscule payroll by going off a of feel right and blake snell is a guy who's never had it who's never uh, fared well late in the games like the idea that he was going to have some sort of like bob gibson performance was always ridiculous but when when like everyone wants analytics to fail and then it once does in a high profile position it's an easy uh, thing to do and say look that doesn't work because like no one's willing to acknowledge like, the, the bunch of times that it does work like all the you know you know ground balls that are gobbled up by their extremely effective shifts F-10. or all of their extremely effective high le- le- leverage late inning relievers when once they get in the game and like all that stuff like so we just identify like a thing that didn't work and then point the finger at something i don't like it's it's silly it's it's dishonest but unfortunately it's just sort of inevitable
1: yeah, I, I think that's fair. Or do, do you have any fears that kind of, because there's so there was so much pushback about this high leverage moment, that kind of some of the ground that analytics is might might get made might get a little undone. I, I feel like the baseball community as a whole should know how helpful analytics is. I know that's more public backlash to it. Do you have any fears of that?
2: Not really. I think what Major League Baseball should do is is, is create rules that don't allow things to happen that they don't think is in the best interest of the game. Like ultimately, baseball is an entertainment product. The, the 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 sole purpose of it is to make money by engineering a way that fans enjoy it so uh in my judgment like baseball should make uh incentivize so that like that kind of thing can't or shouldn't happen i'm good with that but if you give them if you give the the teams the, the front offices the managers the option of of you know of, of doing these things that obviously slow down the game and make it less aesthetically pleasing then the expectation is that they're going to do it um i do absolutely like most of the moves that m- most of the rule changes that they're experimenting in the minor leagues because I think baseball does need sort of a shot in the arm. Uh, but I'm not worried that analytics is going to, you know, decay in baseball. And even if it does, I think it'll probably make it a more entertaining product. And I would also say that the, the push and pull between the analytics community and the old school types, of which I'm sort of in, 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 you know, half and half, is a good thing. Like, it's a good thing to have that. Like, that's the most interesting thing baseball has going for it now. So the idea that, like, everyone should just let the kids play and, and like, you know, you know, you know, bowed all the bat flippers is silly. And the idea that nobody should be able to celebrate <laughs> and get beaned in the ribcage anytime they do something that shows up the, you know, the opponent is also silly. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we can talk about that on national shows is also a good thing. I don't understand why we have to agree on everything. Like sometimes it's yep. okay for both people to be right or both people to be wrong argue about it a bunch because it puts the game in a better spot if the game is, is being talked about nationally at a relevant level. And if you don't know all the characters, sometimes like talking about the fabric of the sport itself is just as interesting as anything else we might otherwise do.
1: Mm. Oh, you're, you're leading into my next question so well with the relevance, but Emma, go for it.
2: I was just
0: going to add, I mean, you you devalued OPS, so this doesn't have as much stock as I thought before, but I do think it's worth mentioning. Sell, Snell's opposing OPS through the lineup first time, 592, second time, 711, third time times 742 so if kevin cash had kept him people would have been criticizing that move it's 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 a, a lose-lose
2: correct I feel like- it, it, if 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 we spend our lives like evaluating decisions based upon outcomes we're not doing it right because that's not how life works you know you make decisions based upon the information you have at the time he made he made a decision based upon the information he had at the time and i bet you in an honest moment he would have done it again and i would laud him for it
0: i agree i agree okay so my last question for you we had a season preview for MLB last week, we did a couple interesting over-unders. Okay. But to bring it back on an even bigger scale, what do you think is one team that's going to make a surprising run this season and then one player that's going to shock this, this season? And I use the word shock because I think that can be used – in a either way. way yeah or a negative way so okay it whichever way
2: you say. I, I got i got a bunch of ways i could go with that um i'll 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 give you a couple of the beaten paths so i submitted my picks to espn.com last week the most surprising of them i would say is that i have toronto in the playoffs i have the blue jays making nice. the playoffs and and the and the, yes, the, the, the tampa bay rays not I mean, the Blue Jays averaged more than five runs a game last year with the youngest lineup in all of baseball and since added George Springer and a, and a couple of decent pitchers. I, I, all, all, all they need to do is pitch average and they'll make it. I think the Rays are going to fall off a good bit because of how much ammo they lost in that starting rotation. And I think teams this year are going to be at a disadvantage if they rely on their bullpen that much because the season's, you know, so much longer than it was a year ago. So I think that's a thing to, to take into account. All it's going to take is maybe two of those young hitters to have career years. And Toronto has a chance to touch 90 wins. I like that club a lot. Uh, as far as a player, um, like I, the last full season he played, he was a monster. But I think Jordan Alvarez is going to lead the American League in all runs. That's, yep. so, that's sort of my, uh, that's sort of like my, my, like I think you can get that like 20 or 25 to one in Vegas. He, he's an absolute monster. Like he slugs 600 as a rookie. His minor league track record is off the charts. The swing is beautiful. He's going to be protected by a bunch of righties in that lineup in a hitter friendly park. Like to me, to me, if, if like, I'm, I'm kind of in on the Astros and, and if I'm right about that, he's going to be a, a big reason why. So like, obviously he's not as big a star in the sport as, as many others are, but he's got, he's got as much big raw power as anybody. And there's no obvious reason to be that if he gets 600 uh, plate appearances, he could hit 40. Like I think his health is going to be a big factor in the pennant race this year. But if he somehow manages to play 150 games, I think he's going to absolutely mash and have a monster season.
0: I am so in on the Astros too. Yeah, I am all yeah. in. I think every single one of them rebound. Pat disagrees though.
2: I say you don't even know it,
1: but you touched on the Blue Jays, which was my surprise team, and you're on Alvarez, which was Emma's pick in our baseball yeah. preview. So you have no idea how happy that just made the both of us. <laughs> I'm just
2: uh, I'm just listen, I'm listening to your podcast. And I'm just stealing your material. Yeah, you make us sound smart.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or so,
2: not, not so smart. We'll find out in six
1: months. Uh, good good point. Um. What final question I have for you then, cause I think this is such an interesting overarching point for baseball. You know, you talked about it a couple weeks ago where basically Mickey Mantle is playing for the angels right now. And Mike Trout. Oh goodness. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you, you talk about it with Fernando Tatis now staying in San Diego. I think there is a fear about relevance for those big stars being out there. How, how does baseball fix this problem? How do they <laughs> get, I know it's such a brutal question, but I'm just so interested to hear your thoughts on it. It's only a brutal question because
2: I was, Just excoriated, but um, because because like because like everyone knows it, no one's willing to say it. It's just one of those things, and that's okay. Like that's that's the fun with Twitter. Like it's it's odd when people are 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 threatening your family over a baseball opinion, but you know, like that's 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 just how it works, right? So, and I'm good with that because like it shows like how passionate people are about the subject and how passionate like Padres fans are about the player. So, Mm -hmm. here's what I would say. I think you put it well in saying, "Mike Trout is Mickey Mantle, and no one cares." Yeah. Like, his, like one in four Americans could identify him, right? Like we, we know that because we have the study that says so. Fernando Tatis also has things going for him that Mike Trout does not. Like he's a lot – he's the coolest looking person I've ever seen. He's like Odell yeah, Beckham Jr. No playing shortstop, right? And and like even though it's not a legacy franchise, it's still a big city. Mm-hmm. And even though it's not like a, a major market, like there still is going to be plenty of opportunity for exposure and and advertisements and, and marketing opportunities. Like, like that's a thing, right? I guess what I would say is we love baseball and we live in an echo chamber in which everything that happens, we see, but I'm not worried about you two. I'm worried about a person for whom they, they, they would, or wouldn't they they wouldn't be a baseball fan if if they didn't, if they didn't grow up in New York and Derek Jeter was playing shortstop for the Yankees. There are many people who would become baseball fans. If theoretically Fernando Tatis was playing shortstop for the Yankees, that would not otherwise be because what baseball needs is famous people, marketable people, popular people that you can follow and get behind and become fans of. And when those people change teams, sort of like the NBA, you remain a fan of the sport, even if they leave your city. Baseball doesn't really have that right now. To me, Fernando Tatis is a a singular talent. Like he is Jeter, He is griffy. He's that kind of, he has that kind of gravity. I'm fearful that him playing not only on the West Coast to where his average game is going to start at 10 o'clock on the East Coast, but also for a non-legacy franchise, no matter how good he is, it's going to be difficult for the national media to harness that in a way that grows his popularity in, in such a way that he would easily have access to playing in Chicago or Boston or New York. I think all the things can be true at once. It's true that that it's a, it's a bad thing for baseball at large that this happened. It's also true that it's a good deal for the player because none of his descendants will ever have to work another day in their lives. And it's a good deal for the team because he's a freaking stud and now you have him locked up for the next 14 years. Baseball system allows it. That's fine. I would have done the same thing if I were Tatis, and I would have done the same thing if I were the Padres. But if I'm Rob Manfred sitting in my commissioner's office and he signs that contract and it crosses the news wire, I say to myself, "I wish that hadn't happened." Because the best thing for my sport long term is if that guy is playing in a big market on the East Coast. That's just how it goes. Like yeah. it's it's super. It's to me, it's kind of cut and dry. And all the and like I mean, two thirds of people are live you know east of Chicago. It's not it's not it's not besmirching people that live on the West Coast. It's just math. So I know it was a very unpopular opinion because it's very um it's a very sensitive topic among baseball fans who like i'm not suggesting they shouldn't have a team in san diego i'm just suggesting that baseball would be better off if he was playing in boston and to me like we can agree that like, he's a wonderful thing for the sport a generational talent like all of this stuff while also just acknowledging like yeah you have to go out of your way to watch him every night because he start you know his game start at 10 o'clock i think it's i think all those things can be true at the same time mm. yeah
0: can you can you say the same thing about bats and trail west coast <laughs> yeah
2: yeah, I think there's a glitch right now in baseball where it's just sort of unlucky where that's happening. Like, yeah. you know, like if, if if Mike Trout was playing center field for the Angels, again, like he'd be he'd be talked about like he's Mickey Mantle. Mickey Betts was a massive star in Boston, and he, like he'll still be a massive star in L.A. And, like, that's a legacy franchise. That's a franchise with a massive fan base, and that's helpful. But generally speaking, it, it's also helpful for your stars to be scattered in such places where people have easy access to them. Yeah. Baseball is also operating from a less advantageous position now than they were, I don't know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago when there was more, more national attention on it right now, like the NBA and the NFL have lapped major league baseball in terms of, its, you know, national popularity and it's celebrity. So Tatis is someone who theoretically they could have harnessed if they had had that opportunity. It also is a two way street. Like Mike Trout just, you know, just didn't have any interest in being baseball's like marketing, you know, you know, superstar that's, and that's okay. Like it's his. It's His choice, the money is so great that him doing anything extra is just because you know, out of the goodness of his heart, you know, for lack of a better term. So, yeah, I think that's fair. Like, right now, there's just sort of a glitch there where there's a bunch of star players on the west coast, and I who wake up at three o'clock in the morning, I'm just gonna have to deal with that,
0: right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. And to your point, I, I hope Francisco Lindor gets pressured by Rob Manford to stay with the Mets as a Mets fan, uh, just for that. that New York,
2: uh, yeah. Yeah, let's, collude, let's let's collude from the commission, yeah, right? exactly. I do, I do hope you're right. I do hope that, um. I do hope that Lindor stays on the East Coast, and I also think that he's a, another player who's a Hall of Fame talent. Like he's mm-hmm. like we, it's sort of fl- flown under the radar for some reason. Maybe it's just because they've not re- uh, signed him to a long term contract. But my hope is that they they. I mean, I'm a Phillies fan, so I don't yep. want him to stay in New York. But <laughs> sure. I do, for the health for the health of baseball, like to me, he's he has an opportunity to to, to occupy a, a unique position, and baseball doesn't really have a face right now. Uh, and there's no obvious reason to me that uh, for, uh, Francisco Lindor playing on the East Coast in New York could fill that position in a way that you know he obviously would not have had the opportunity to do so had he still been playing in Cleveland
0: yeah that's a really good point point. and closing thoughts this can be quick knowing you it probably won't be and that's totally fine <laughs> but Pat and I are both I'm a Red Sox fan Pat is a Mets fan can you give your ceiling for both teams and hopefully leave us feeling good
2: yeah so I think the ceiling for the Mets is like 95 wins that's a good club yeah I uh, in my head. yeah so I mean, that team, the lineup is way underrated. It was the best lineup in the national league last year for my money. And they've had a, they've since had a Francisco Lindor indoor and they filled out sort of the defense in a way that I like a lot. And if they somehow add the DH, I think it helps you more than it helps most teams. So yes, 95 is sure. my ceiling and thus they could, they could win the pennant. Like I guess I think it's going to depend upon uh, how much pitching they get and you know, how long Carrasco is out or how they can replace him or, you know, that's or whether or not Edwin Diaz cannot allow a home run on every pitch that he throws, you that'd know, that'd be nice. Kinds of um, <laughs> I think the Red Sox ceiling is a lot lower. I mean, as I'm sure you would, I mean, I don't know what your number is, but mine would probably be that there there would be like a 500 club. Like they're going to hit, like they're going to hit. And I think Alex is going to get the most out of that, that lineup. Mm -hmm. But the problem is like, you know, the three of us would comprise 60% of the rotation if we were eligible to pitch for them. So that's, that's (laughs) my concern. In in the American (laughs) league East of all places, your rotation is that thin. You're just relying upon a bunch of people to do stuff that you can't expect. So I don't know. I think they're a 500 club. They're going to hit some, but I'm also, like if they're also a little bit, a little ways out, like in July, I could also see Bloom just trading off a bunch of pieces because yeah. they're clearly focused on the future. So even if they're five games over 500 at the deadline, but with no clear path to the playoffs, you know, maybe behind two or three teams in their own division, I could see them not tanking the rest of the season, but trading a couple pieces off that, you know, that might not be a part of their next wave of, of good teams. So I'd say 95 of the Yankees and I'll say 81 for the Sox.
0: I'm hopeful that if everybody overperforms they can be what you said for the Blue Jays. Their pitching can just be enough and their hitting's already there that maybe they can piece some things together. But the AL East is competitive enough where it's going to be no tough no matter what.
2: No, no doubt. And, and the year they won the World Series like they exceeded expectations beyond our wild- wildest dreams. So right. we know Alex can get a lot of the, out of the team. And mm-hmm. if four or five of those guys hit the way that we know they're capable, they're going to score 800 runs. So <laughs> it gets it comes down to one thing that like You know, maybe if they hit their maybe if that staff hits their say like 90th percentile, maybe you're right. Maybe they can maybe they can win closer to ninety games than to eighty games. But I'm just not I'm not gonna bet on on that ten percent.
1: That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. And best of luck to your Phillies, who I think are going to be better, but the division is just so brutal. I don't know how it's gonna be quantified. But listen, if if things go right, I guess they could be right there in the race, right? The Phillies.
2: Yeah, the Phillies could be a lot better and still finish fourth in their division. That's, that's sort of that's what what how I, I feel, I feel and I don't think that. and I don't think
1: that's a slight on the Phillies. I just think that's the the Braves, Mets, and Nats this year. So. Well,
2: last year the Phillies had like two fatal flaws. They one had like the worst bullpen of bullpen, all time, bullpen, bullpen. and secondly, like the worst defense of all time. They had, they allowed a batting average of balls in play of three forty five. Like, insane. every time the ball was put in play, like it was freaking Rod Carew. So it's hard to like <laughs> it's hard like it's hard, to, and they haven't changed the team much. So like it's hard for me to imagine a scenario in which both of those get back to average. If they can be average in those areas, they'll probably make the playoffs. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you, like you're just expecting people to do things that they're not capable of or things that we've mm-hmm. not seen. Again, like I'm just, I don't like betting on things that haven't happened or aren't likely to happen. That's all. Yeah.
1: That's Definitely. Fine.
0: Awesome. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on. We have baseball starting this Thursday, obviously Pat and I have been psyched and you were the perfect person to have on at this point. Thank you so, so much. It was awesome meeting you and, and thank you for all your incredible insight
1: yeah well, thanks, thanks for you having so me much. yeah of course and thank, you, thank you for your extended time with us as well we, we mm. really appreciate it uh, <laughs> later thanks
0: bye all right so we hope that you liked that as much as we did paul again thank you so much for coming on one of the best interviews we've ever had in terms of such interesting relevant to our show pat it was just so cool to have paul
1: yeah, so a, a huge thank you to Paul for taking the time to to come on and, and speak with us. I had a great time going through it. I, I thought all his points were, were really interesting. I thought it was great how we touched on things we've discussed in the past. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so just a, just an all-around, you know, fantastic interview.
0: We didn't pay him to say that. I he swear. just said it. Yep, so, yep. Again, it, it could either make us look very, very smart or we're all just completely wrong at the end
1: high chance i'm wrong but you know what let's hope <laughs> let's hope things work out
0: yeah so we're, we again we hope you enjoyed that because it is just so in tune with what we try to do on this show and i think our name encapsulates that pretty well too did you hear all that awesome stuff that paul said so so glad we were able to do that and it was a nice mix of we had the baseball preview last week and then i think this is some more in-depth insight that you can take into either your fantasy baseball draft or your everyday viewing all that it was just cool timing
1: i mean it's it's opening day week this it's christmas week basically for, (laughs) for people like you and me i could not be more excited for things to get kicked off on thursday for first pitch
0: yeah me too all right so we're gonna go into our craziest numbers of the week we both have college basketball once again as we're still on we're recording tuesday night the last night of the elite Eight. But before we do that, we'll do some some social stuff. So our new followers of the week on Instagram, we had Mike Siebert, excuse me, Matt Siebert. Sorry about that. And Pat, another, another somebody, part of the Zhang family. The Zhang family is showing... Out for the Did You Hear podcast, Steve Zhang. Thank you for the follow.
1: <laughs> Gotta love it. So my uncle and then one of my uh, my best friends from high school and Matt Siebert as well following. So really love appreciate <laughs> the support from everyone. <laughs>
0: and on, another on the same side. So on Twitter we had P two which is a a Nova guy, Joey Orr.
1: Got the Joey legend. Orr knows the how leg- much
0: we appreciate his support.
1: The Holy Grail himself is now a
0: follower. And Hoop Dreams with Tiff and Kyler, a Blue Wire Hustle podcast. So thank you to everybody who threw us a follow. If you want to get on, on that, follow us on Instagram and slash or Twitter at Did you Hear Pod, and you will get a shout out next week. And this week, we had a new rating on Apple Podcasts from Paul's Scoop on the U. Thank you so much, Paul, for doing that. And if you want to get on, on in on this, make sure to head over to two Apple podcasts, leave us a rating, leave us a review. We'll shout you out. And you can also have the chance to pick our next best of segment. So get in all that. We really appreciate the support, the support, and we love being able to shout you guys out.
1: Oh, it's so fun. We want to be able to say thank you. We appreciate our community growing, and we're having a great time doing this.
0: Yeah, and we have been, uh, just to, to put things in perspective a bit, Pat and I have been having some really, really awesome weeks in terms of numbers. Mm-hmm. So we are so so thankful to all the people who made march our best month yet by a significant number so we really really appreciate it
1: and the plan is to keep growing from here keep so growing. yes thank you to everyone that has been downloading listening letting us know what you think we're we're having a great time doing this and we're going to continue to do so
0: yeah and we do have a big announcement coming i think we're going to wait one more week pat until we say yep. it But it has something to do with the baseball season and just more content that we're putting out there that we're really excited about. And we're already having a bit of withdrawal without the Villanova recap episode. So you knew something else had to be coming.
1: It kind of hurt last night, last night being Monday night, knowing that Villanova could have been playing in the Elite Eight. But hey, as we talked about, it was a great run to get to the Sweet 16.
0: Yeah. All right. So talking about college basketball... Let's go to our numbers. Mine is about the women, and yours is about the men. Would you like to go first, or would you like me to?
1: I can go first. Okay, cool. go ahead. So, uh, to perfect way to do it is my number is 13, and that is the number of upsets that have happened so far in this tournament. So, first, you can check out that number on the Did You Hear Pod Instagram account, which Emma's doing a wonderful job putting out statistics. That was a part of the Sweet 16 statistics roundup. And why I think that 13 is so interesting it's because the final four will happen over this weekend. Mm. And it will most likely be with a one, a one, a one, and a two seed. Yeah, <laughs> and crazy, that is, of right? course, barring UCLA beating Michigan tonight. Uh, you know, USC as a six as well going up against Gonzaga. But I would assume both ones win that game. Play this back when I get that wrong. Uh, <laughs> but it, it looks like you could have three number ones and a two in a, in a tournament that has had so many upsets.
0: So I'm actually not as all-in on Michigan as you seem to be. I think UCLA has a chance. McCrowning. It might not be likey, likely, but I think they have a chance. And unfortunately, USC, even though you and I have both been very high on M- Evan Mobley and USC, they don't have a chance against Gonzaga.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. I don't think anyone has a chance against Gonzaga. Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: but so, so my takeaway from that number and then the fact that we're going to have three ones and a two is I think we had the most incredible quality of games in the tournament thus far with upsets, with close games, with buzzer beaters, with overtimes. Everything we could have wanted. And then in the final four, we will get the best quality teams. Mm -hmm. I kind of think it's a win-win. Yes, it would be awesome to see an 11 seed or a 15 seed, something crazy like that. But the fact that they made it so far, I think when it comes down to it, you want to see the best teams in the country going up against each other. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And it's funny, in college football, there's obviously a much bigger parity issue. And even this past year, you wondered why the teams played at all, if it's going to be the same four teams making it into the college football playoff. And I think maybe the, uh, the naysayers could say the same thing about this year. With Gonzaga and Baylor, but because we had so many upsets, and the upset being defined as a team five seeds higher, that is crazy that we got 13 of those, and now we're just getting some absolute powerhouses in the Final Four.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree with your point that I think the upsets are fun early, but you know when it's all said and done, you want to have the best teams in the country in yeah. your Final Four. And, I mean, the biggest part of that was getting Gonzaga and Baylor there. Baylor Mm -hmm. has done their part. We'll see if Gonzaga can finish that out tonight. By the time this is released, people will know if Gonzaga has done their part. Uh, All I'm hoping for is that we get that Gonzaga-Baylor championship game that I think we all deserve from this season because, listen, that's just quite simply, they're the two best teams in the country, and we deserve that title game because, wow, that would be what a matchup.
0: And we got robbed of it back in, was it December? December. what it was supposed to be?
1: Forty-five minutes before the matchup, it got yeah. called off due to Baylor COVID protocols.
0: I remember where I was, weirdly, not because uh, that game. So do had I. Because such... I texted you
1: immediately yeah, how we upset did text... I was.
0: <laughs> and it was snowing in Connecticut that day too. It was a huge storm, but we were robbed of it then. So if if the cards all fall the way they're supposed to, we'll finally get it. And I think it's just going to be a complete slugfest.
1: Uh, it would be awesome, and and that's not to count out the matchups too in the mm-hmm. final four that we would get as well. Of course, we can't talk about them explicitly because we don't know them for sure yet but uh, it, it should be a very fun weekend culminating in a title game next monday night
0: and now that we've talked about it so much we probably won't see gonzaga or a Baylor. so oh, great <laughs> yeah, <you're>, good point <laughs> no i'm just kidding but those teams are too good but who knows you know we're still in this we're still in the second to last day of march madness can still happen uh,
1: it's so true anything can happen other than gonzaga losing that yeah. is my <laughs> that, that is my point.
0: <laughs> All right, so I'm going to switch to the women's bracket where there was another phenomenal game last night between Yukon, number 1 seeded Yukon and the 2 seeded Baylor, the Lady Bears. Um, I, just to preface, think that Baylor should have been a one seed. At that this point, the other teams are so good. I mean, talk about parity.
2: Mm. It
0: seems like the difference between the ones and the twos versus everybody else in the field in this women's tournament is just insane. So you're going to be getting all the top seeds in this final four too. But the craziest number I heard this week was 19. And that is because UConn went on a 19 to nothing yes. run. Yes. At the end of the third quarter into halfway through the fourth quarter, we do have to talk about the, the no foul call, but UConn won this game when they went on a 19 to nothing run. Like, let's not, let's not confuse it any more than it needs to be. UConn turned it on and unfortunately, I don't think this is co- completely coincidental because when they went on the 19 to nothing run, that was when Baylor's best player dd richards went down with a mm-hmm. hamstring injury that was at the 237 mark in the third so it was un- horrible timing and and richard has gone through so much this entire season anyway so it was crushing for her to go down she was crying on the sidelines it's horrible you hate to see that
1: yeah I saw but
0: it. the way yukon is just such an unbelievable competitor every single year and for them to turn it on they had already had their largest deficit of the tournament they were down 10 points at that point probably their largest deficit in two years if not more hmm. and it was just crazy to, to watch them turn it on like that
1: you could also now use what the number 13 just like i did right this yep. is their 13th consecutive final four Good, good call. Yeah, Safe. imagine
0: if, yeah, we could have both done 13. Could, I don't we think we've have. ever done that. No, no. Yeah. So we
1: could have both done 13. But no, I think I think you nailed it there. The foul, no foul is what got a lot of press coming out of this game. But as you said, UConn won this game with the nineteen zero run. run. Yes. It, it was that simple. That is where they, they completely turned the momentum. Baylor was in control for a good point of the, part of that game until that happened. And then UConn just completely changed all the momentum and, and wrote it out.
0: It would be like if Gonzaga was down 10. It, mm-hmm. It's that shocking to the system to see Yukon having that over <laughs> yeah trailing having that deficit to overcome. So with all that being said, I have to ask you if you think it should have been a foul.
1: Ah, so interesting. We were texting about it last night and my my first gut reaction was no. I, I saw some still shots from it today and I, I maybe creeped into my mind that maybe it was, but mm-hmm. just looking at it in full speed, I still say no foul. And what, what I really go with no foul on is that I, I thought it was very poor from Baylor. They didn't really run anything. It was just get to the basket. She dribbled straight into a double team. I hate bailing teams out for just poor, you know, poor planning and poor play in that where it's just, we're going to try and take a one-on-one. So I, I would have a hard time having that game be decided by a foul. Yeah. I I really, really strongly dislike when fouls are called. Especially listen, as long as you're not killing the person, it's not blatant, you know, I, I don't see a reason to put a call there, so I would say no foul.
0: Okay, I have a lot of things. I Go agree with it. you. The first is that the fact that this many people are talking about it is amazing for women's college basketball. Amazing. Completely Any press agree. is good press. <laughs> yep. Uh so I actually started off differently. I thought it was a foul as it was happening. And then since, I've convinced myself that it wasn't a foul. And a couple reasons why... I, I completely agree with you where it it sucks. I was going back and forth on whether it's worse to end a game on a no-call, if that's what you thought happened, mm-hmm. or Baylor sinks two free throws and wins the game. Yeah. They're both terrible. for For each respective team, it's a terrible outcome. And I agree that Baylor didn't run a good play two straight possessions, going back to when they turned the ball over way early in the shot clock, even a few possessions before that. So I think they, they really faltered down the stretch. The other thing is that I am so over seeing that still picture on Twitter.
1: Yeah, yep, that's exactly what I was referring to. You, you know cannot, exactly what it is.
0: You cannot make that call based on a still photograph. Mm-hmm. That's not what happens. <laughs> the refs don't get to see it still by still and make the call. It was an incredibly physical game. So I think this no-call was in tune with all the rest of the calls that the refs made, which means inherently that it was a good call. On the other end, the possession before that, I think it was Kristen Williams got absolutely hacked and there was no call. Baylor went to the line more times than UConn did. So my biggest takeaway from this is I don't know how anyone wants to be a ref anymore. I I can't (laughs) imagine anyone wanting to be in this position. But... I think it was in tune with all the other contact that had been let go the entire game. They really did let the girls play the entire time. And I think people would have felt worse if, if this incredible matchup between these two sluggers had ended and Baylor making two free throws in the game ending, that would have been worse to me.
1: I think a part of it is just the, I don't know if, wordness is the redundancy at this point yeah. people are tired of yukon that's what it is so that they, <laughs> listen they're looking for anything that would that would knock gino out not knock yukon out i do think that plays a part in it is yeah. that if it, this was yukon on the other side i i don't think that mm. you you would get the same type of backlash about it um, but you know, as we've said, there's been a ton of backlash on this and I'm actually really surprised that we agree. Cause it seems yeah. like a ton of people will take the other side.
0: I would say the majority do. Yeah, right? I just, I didn't even watch the entire game. I watched the majority of the second half and bits and pieces of the first half, but there were multiple times in this game where I audibly had a reaction because they let contact go. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 wouldn't, I would have been much angrier if they called this a foul, just because it was the last possession of the game. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just because it's a big moment doesn't mean that you have to go back on the calls you've made for the rest of the the rest of the way. Agreed. Yeah. Cool. But but it was it was a really cool game and I wish we could have had it either in the title game or the final four because I, that probably will be the best game of the entire women's tournament.
1: Yeah, that was that was awesome. So I, I was the same as you were. I caught much more of the second half than I did of the first half. Yeah. But that it was just a fun game to watch and you could see tell how talented, you know, both teams were
0: page beckers baby best oh, tweet i stud. saw from mina kimes she said page Becker should go to the nets
1: <laughs> oh i did see that i yes yes that, that was listen mina kimes is fantastic um they're but recruiting that,
0: everybody they might as well get page
1: that was awesome and did you also see the picture that she was friends with Jalen suggs in yes high school? So oh my
0: god i thought of you when i saw that yeah, actually the two yeah.
1: best the two best freshmen in college basketball take that kate cunningham uh we're we're <laughs> friends in in high school i think that is so cool on both the men's and women's side so
0: cool yeah, yeah. that that was really funny they both look so young too yeah, they did really cool <laughs> yeah all right awesome so i'm glad we were able to, to recap some basketball we've got gonzaga usc as we speak is going on and then michigan you ucla and they are facing up against either or baylor and um houston mm-hmm. that will make up the other half of the final four it's coming down to it
1: we're almost there
0: yeah all right i'm super excited about this best. Uh, we kind of came to it in a, in a joint decision here. Opening day is tomorrow, as you're listening to this. Pat, what is the best ballpark you have ever been to? Ooh, it's
1: such a brutal question, Uh and mostly because I still have plenty more to go yes, to. I, I think I've I think I've been to 11. If I'm counting, also parks that are no longer with us, as, mm. as in Shea Stadium, <laughs> Shea Stadium, and the old Yankee Stadium. Yes, may they please rest in peace. Um, I I will go with the it's it's a classic answer, but the reason why so many people say it's because it's true. And for me, it's San Francisco. Just mm. it's so tough to beat that stadium. You know, on McCovey Cove, looking out onto the bay, uh, they have awesome music experience around the ballpark. They have incredible garlic fries there their sight lines are awesome you know the park is just beautiful you've got the statue of McCovey there uh, on top of it it's just it is the perfect setting for baseball so I go I go with the classic but it's the giant stadium
0: yeah what's the name of it
1: I uh, there's a reason I said the giant stadium yeah I can't so it was, was at and I I think is it Oracle now? I, I oh can't that sounds right. Oracle or... is
0: definitely one. Yeah. Yes.
1: So, uh, but yes, it's out in San Francisco.
0: Okay. Yeah. The, the name didn't pop into my head automatically either. I feel like those one, that one, and PNC Park.
1: who's mm-hmm. been there, th- been there as well. The... Loved that.
0: And you're giving San Francisco over PNC.
1: I am. I like San Francisco more. Interesting.
0: Those are the It is two... Oracle Park, by the way. Yeah. Good call. Um, I my my bucket list is to go to every single ballpark. Same. And I have not done nearly as much as I would have liked to at this (laughs) point, but San Francisco and Pittsburgh are my top two right now that I want to go to the most.
1: Both are beautiful.
0: Yeah. My answer is very boring and I'm sure you know it, but it's Fenway Park. Fenway. And I I actually, I've been to Wrigley and I feel like Fenway and Wrigley are put in the same category in terms of the history and Wrigley has the Ivy and Fenway has the green monster. I've been to my fair share of Fenway games and I truly don't think there's anything better. It is just so awesome. I've I haven't sit I haven't sat in the monster yet or on the monster, but it is so cool. It's it's a perfect mix of old but not rusty or anything, you know, gross like that. It's just so cool and To be there rooting for the Red Sox is the perfect day for me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, listen, Fenway is awesome. I have been to Fenway. As well. Uh, I did get to sit on the monster when was I it went cool? there. It was. So I will say thank you to my mother for getting those seats when yeah. I was, what, nine or ten years That's old. That's so cool. Definitely still haven't forgotten that experience. I even remember, I believe it was Paul Bird that pitched for the Red Sox that day. Oh my gosh, That, wow. that we were there. Uh, it's such a cool experience. It's such an awesome ballpark. We all know about the history. Uh, I, Fenway's got to be right up there.
0: Yeah, I've actually gone back, back and forth a lot. On whether, A, I want to spend the money to sit on the monster, but also whether the view is better than any of the other places in the park, but it's more so just to be there and to say that you've sat there, I think, more than anything else. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think that's really fair. So I've only experienced it once, and it was that, that Green Monster game. Wow. So Yeah, so I do not know what the other experiences around Fenway are, but that's we can change that. Yes. Wow.
0: That's funny. Yeah, yeah, I've been to, I haven't even been to the new Met Stadium. Oh, I've so only been to Shea.
1: It is honestly, it it doesn't get enough credit for how good it is. They mm. listen. the The Wilpons did basically everything <laughs> wrong with the Mets. City Field is a jewel. It is. It's beautiful. They the surrounding area is a dump, but the stadium itself is perfect.
0: Yeah, I'll leave you with this, Pat. Before you outro us, I am hopeful that the next time we record, your craziest number of the week will have something to do with Francisco Lindor's extension
1: I'm just sitting here and I think you just froze me up because I'm so tense knowing that as of recording this there is oh like a little over 24 hours until uh Lindor's self-imposed deadline for an extension exhale so yes I hope so too
0: (laughs) just to do we know why he put a self-imposed deadline why is that the case
1: uh, he just doesn't want to negotiate in-season. He wants to focus on okay. baseball, which okay. I, I completely just understand. Fine. Rizzo is
0: doing the same thing. Yeah, Chicago.
1: especially, by the way, the Cubs messed that up so royally that yeah, Rizzo did. has to even take that stance. But, um, yeah, so totally get that on Lindor's part. But we will see. things. Uh, if I things are it, happening, it should happen. break soon.
0: Yeah, I think it'll happen.
1: Uh, I was certain it was going to happen until the number 400 million was thrown out about 24 hours before we recorded this. Yeah, we agree. We'll see. I still think it happens, but I'm not as confident as I was a day ago.
0: We actually completely messed up. That was quite literally the craziest thing I've heard, maybe ever, that Francisco Lindor wants 400 million dollars.
1: We can all want things, right? <laughs> it's just what we end up getting.
0: <laughs> but hopefully, I, I, I still think it'll be fine between them.
1: Yeah, I, I think so too. I think it's really hard to turn down 10 years, 325 million plus. I think yeah, And as a Hembo far... said,
0: the the East needs a star. Mm-hmm. And Francisco Lindor maybe will start the charge the and then everybody will follow him.
1: We shall see, but we should know. Well, we will know by our next episode if yeah. Francisco Lindor's extension has been ironed out or if this thing is going into the off season.
0: I'm hoping for you.
1: Same. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that'll do it for episode 22 of the Did You Hear podcast. We want to thank Hembo again for coming on and giving us some awesome time today uh, for what was just a, a great, great interview. Uh, you can, uh, never miss an episode with us by subscribing on iTunes and following on Spotify. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at did you hear pod and uh, you know, let us know what you think and keep leaving those ratings and, and keep following along. But Emma,
2: that's a wrap.